Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, this is our third week of our apologetics classes. Um, <clears throat> I was originally going to uh, speak today about how to how we came about with the New Testament and how we can trust the New Testament documents, um, but I kind of decided in the midst of some things that were happening this week, uh, we're going to change. I'm going to do a different teaching today. Um, called the, it's on what's called the problem of evil, or how is there evil, evil and suffering in the world, and how do we as Christians address it or understand it? Um, kind of part of the reason why is that uh, um, I just kind of want to share a couple of things from this week. Um, but like I said, it was kind of a hard week for us as a family. Um, just a lot of stuff going on and different things, um, and it's not because I shaved my beard, just so everybody knows. So although I did, one of my kids was kind of. It was a little upset, but uh, it's okay. It's okay. So that's that seems to be the consensus. That it looks better without it. So, but uh, um, but no, it was just kind of a hard week this week. And um, one, it was it was really amazing to see how um, God's word comes through in such times and, and ministers to us. Um, Pastor Greg on Sunday, his message through the week spoke to both my wife and myself. Um, the interesting thing was, is that like, it wasn't even like the same specific parts of that story in Acts. It was two separate pieces of that, that coming together afterwards and speaking about it, um, it's, it spoke to the same issue. So also too, we as a family, we've been reading through um, the Bible, um, and, and this has included a psalm every day. And... Um, it's always interesting how the how psalms they um, they really do they minister us and I can there was a you know especially for me and I know for all of us in the family um, that um, reading those psalms really did now um, so kind of I was working through and wrestling through this teaching like I was going to do the New Testament thing but then I actually was coming felt myself coming back to some of these texts that I'm going to talk about today, uh, and so I felt like, well, maybe this is a, a good opportunity to go ahead and just, just do this problem of evil teaching. Um, but I was looking, and this is kind of, because there's kind of two pieces here, but the whole thing with how, it's amazing to me how God's Word really ministers to us. I was listening to a podcast, and it was, a man was talking about a study by a, a group called Back to the Bible. And so what they did was, is they surveyed four, over 400,000 Christians in 24 different countries. And in this survey, they found some very interesting information. And um, it's interesting, one, because it, it pertains to the reading of the Bible. Uh, two, it, it's, it was an actual empirical study with analysis and, you know, statistician, all, the, all that stuff. And it's just interesting to me that we have this, like, empirical data that really supports the Christian worldview and the Christian understanding of how important the scriptures are. Um, so what they discovered in this was that uh, if you read the Bible only one time a week, it has negligible effects on certain key areas in your life. And I'll, I'll talk to those in just a second. Uh, two times a week, negligible effects. Three times a week, negligible effects. Um, but really the profound thing was is that they found when you read your Bible four times a week or more, um, these key areas really spiked on their analysis. So these key areas, um, so there was areas that dropped and there was areas that increased. So feeling, feelings of loneliness dropped, 
30%. Uh, anger issues, 32%. Bitterness in relationships, especially marriage, dropped by 40%. Alcoholism dropped 57%. Um, sexual issues and vices, such as pornography and things of that nature, dropped by 60%. Um, and to me, this is one of the biggest and kind of most profound things is that uh, oftentimes we all at different points and times in our walks have a sense of feeling distant from God or spiritually stagnant. And that dropped by 62% by being in the Word four, at least four times a week. But that's not all the, finding, the findings that were there. There was positive, I guess you could say the positive side of it, or things increasing. Um, sharing of your faith rose 200%. Uh, discipling others, uh, which you know includes coworkers, family, people in your ministry, that jumped 230%. Um, so it's just going through this week and stuff, and the just kind of like this reliance of like on God's word. And I came across, I remembered this from a while ago, for and for whatever reason, it came back to me, and I felt like I was remembered. I wanted to kind of use it or share it somehow, um, but I went back to it and kind of threw it in here, even though it's not what we're talking fully about today because we're talking about um, the problem of evil. But this, this is something that uh, is part of our defense. It, it, it's, it's, it's evidence. We talked about last week how our faith is rooted in the real world or faith, you know, truth corresponds to the real world and the real realities of the world. It's not some kind of subjective thing. It's not a, you know, the, what we call the pragmatic theory, which is like, well, you know, we can't really know truth, so you're, you make your own truth, right? Um, so this shows us how our faith is actually rooted in reality, how it's rooted in truth, um, and also how our faith contributes to human flourishing as well. Um, so as I said, today we're going to be talking about the problem of evil, and really the problem of evil is kind of uh, has been used a lot by atheists and stuff like that to try as like a weapon against Christianity, but there we have we have answers to it, and I'll dig more into this. So, the problem of evil is kind of a a, a term that kind of captures three different kind of sub issues. So there's um, kind of three ways to look at it. There's one thing. There's two questions that are what do you call intellectual and one that's existential or experiential. Um, the, the two that are kind of the intellectual part of the problem of evil, there's what's called the logical problem of evil and the probabilistic problem of evil. And then you have the separate, that's the experiential, what you would call the emotional problem of evil. So my hope is to explain these arguments and give, you know, give our defense to them, but also to, to give a biblical framework for understanding of the pain and evil in the world as a believer. So first, the first of the two intellectual problems is the logical problem of evil. So this version tries to say that there's a logical contradiction concerning the nature and character of God and the existence of evil. We talked about logical contradictions and self-defeating statements. The, the atheist tries to say that somehow that the existence of evil and the nature of God, um, there's, a, there's a contradiction there. Okay, and we'll see why it's not, it's not the case. Um, 
So the nature of God is often described in what you call the omnis. So you have, you know, like God is omnibenevolent, which is all good. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He is omnipresent. Okay. He's, he's omnipotent. He's all powerful. So these are kind of the, the often the terms we to use to describe the character or the, the nature of God. And this is confirmed in scripture. We know from the Bible that God is all powerful or that he's omnipotent. And there's numerous Bible verses. We can look at hundreds of them, uh, but I just selected one. It's Job 42, two. Um, this is after God, you know, Job is sitting there and he finally comes and he's like on the, he doesn't curse God. He comes to that line and he comes to that point and God shows up in a big way and really was like, where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? You know, like, who do you think you are? And Job, you know, puts his hand, he says, I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. But he says, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We know from the Bible that God is perfectly good or omnibenevolent. Again, many, many Bible verses speak to this case. In Psalm 145, 17, we're told the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all of his works. Just one example. So we know God is all good and we know he's all powerful. Now, the logical problem of evil says that God is, that if God is all powerful, he cannot be all good for allowing, for, for allowing evil to exist. So if he's all powerful and he's all good, he would stop evil. That's the kind of the premise. Or if he's all good, then he can't be all powerful because that he can't, he doesn't have the power to stop evil. And that's why evil exists in the world. Um, if anybody, this is, I'm trying to think when this movie, 2015, there's Batman versus Superman. You might have seen it. You might not. It's not that great of a movie, but there's a, there's a moment on like the top, like, like he's speaking to Superman. He's like, you were, you know, and he gives this kind of dialogue. Your God is either all good, you know, but all, all power. So it's just like, but the problem is, so they're trying to say there's a logical contradiction and that's, you know, so God is neither, either not all good or not all powerful. And that's why evil exists. But despite the, despite the fact that this is often used in uh, kind of broader culture today, you know, was used in Superman. Um, it really only has its place in pop culture because like in academia, nobody, nobody even talks about this anymore Athe like atheists and agnostic philosophers and stuff don't even touch it because it's been thoroughly refuted okay um and the reason why is that there's a christian philosopher his name's alvin planinga in a book called if you're really interested in this it's kind of dry i'm not gonna lie but it's called god freedom and evil and this is one of his main works that he really addresses this um he systematically takes the logical problem of evil apart and shows there's no contradiction between God's omnipotence and God's om omnibenevolence and the existence of evil. So I, I, as I said, I can't, I can't go into all of it. It's not a super thick book, but can't go into all of it here. But the long story short is that there's no logical contradiction due to man's choice. Okay. See, God created us to enter into a loving relationship with him. The whole, you know, the whole biblical narrative, the big narrative of the Bible is that he created us and he wanted to be in relationship with us. So the thing is, is that by its very nature, love must be a choice. Okay. 
If love is not freely chosen, then it is not love. And an example of this, and I'm going to use this. I didn't come up with it, so I'm not that creative. But um, uh, So let's say that, girls, you had a friend, okay? And this friend decides that he, you know, wants to be with you, that he loves you. So he starts, like, sending flowers, sending love letters, you know, sending chocolates, all this kind of stuff, and he's trying to do this and woo you, right? And he finally comes to you and he says, I want to be with you, I love you. And you just say to him, well, I don't, I just want to be friends, okay? If he says, no, I'm going to make you love me, first you need to run, okay? But second of all, there's no way, that is not love. By its very definition, love is a choice. So in the same way, you know, God has sent us messages. He sent us his Holy Spirit. He has sent us his word. He has sent us people to, to minister us in time of need. And he's given us all these things. And we have a choice to go, I do or I don't love God. And so if you, God, see, because God could have created us as robots. He, but he loves us enough to honor our choice because if he loves us, he will not force us to love him because that's not love. So you, God could have created us as robots. He, he could have created us as automatons that just worship him, but he didn't. He created us to love him and have a relationship with him. However, man used our free will. We, you know, and we chose to rebel against God and we chose sin and entered into sin, and sin in turn entered into the world. This isn't something that God didn't foresee, however. God is all-knowing. He's omniscient as well. And rather, God knew the te- that the temporary evil that would result from the free choice of man would pale in comparison to the infinite love that we would be able to experience with him. The greater good, the greatest good, was for us to enter into love, a loving relationship with him. And evil, because of love must be a free choice, is a byproduct of that. And so that's what Alvin Plan to get really addresses in this book. And there's, that's really the reason why it's not even really addressed by atheistic philosophers and agnostics and things of that nature. So that's, the, that's like the first like intellect, what you call the intellectual problem of evil. Next is the probabilistic problem of evil. So the probabilistic form claims that while the coexistence of an all-powerful, all-good God and evil is, there's not like a, a logical contradiction like we talked about. It's not, you know, like we talked about with the relative theories of truth. It's, there's no logical contradiction there at all. So this theory says, well, there's not a contradiction, but the problem is that they say, well, nevertheless, it's highly improbable. Okay, so it claims that the probability of the existence of of God's existence is very low given like the amount of evil in the world. There's just so much evil all over the place. It's kind of like what people say. You've probably heard people appeal to this argument and make things by, you know, make claims by saying like, you know, well, I can't believe in a God who would allow so much evil in the world, right? We've all heard this. Now, this is one, a very pessimistic view, and it fails to account really for all the innumerable good that is in the world. Um, that we often don't, times don't give credit for, and the ultimate good of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. However, let's enter into the, we're going we're gonna to 
enter into this line of reasoning and show how the probabilistic form of evil has errors with it, okay? So first, first and foremost, there's no way to account or tabulate for the amount of evil in the world, okay? There's not like, you know, one cubic unit of evil or whatever, you know, there's no, evil by its nature is an immaterial thing. It, it manifests itself in physical ways in the world, but it's, it's, it's in immaterial, you can't measure evil. There's no quantifiable way to measure the amount of evil. And again, as I said before, this fails to take into account all the good as well. But anyway, but let's say you could, so you can't measure evil. There's no like quantifiable way to do it. Second, so if you, even if you could, let's hypothetically say you could measure it. There's no way to like make some kind of math problem or extrapolate like the probability of God's existence from the quantity of evil measure. Like you can measure like there's so many cubic units of, you know, evil in the world. You, that doesn't mean that you can make some kind of math problem to be like, therefore, the probability of God is this percentage based off of that evil. So you can't measure the amount of evil. You can't even like have some type of measuring or some type of equation to calculate that. Third, even if it was possible to measure the evil in the world, even if it were possible to, you know, calculate the probability of God's existence based on this amount, it would still not logically flow that it's unreasonable to believe in God. So even if you can measure it, come up with an equation and say the percentage, the chance of God existing based on the amount of evil in the world is 10%. Okay. Even still, it's not unreasonable to believe in God. And here's why. So, like I said, let's assume that we can measure all these things and we can't. Okay. Also, let's suppose, um, like I said, we, we, God, the, the chances of God existing is 10% based on my measurements and my calculations. So, here's an example. So, let's say there's a man named Bob. Okay. Bob is from Georgia. And we all know that only nine, that nine out of 10 people from Georgia can't swim. So only 10 people, 10% of the people from Georgia can swim. This is all hypothetical. This isn't real. I thought about doing something with like college football and like gators and stuff, but I'm from Indiana and I don't pay attention to college football anyway. So, but, uh, but based, based on this evidence alone, the probability of Bob, like I said, being able to swim would be very low. However, that doesn't mean it's unreasonable to think that Bob can swim. And it's not unreasonable because maybe you have other information available to you, okay? Maybe you know Bob has been swimming from a very young age. And maybe you know that Bob is a lifeguard and he teaches classes at the YMCA on how to swim, okay? While the probability of Bob being able to swim is low based on the single fact that 9 out of 10 people from Georgia can't swim, it's perfectly reasonable to you to be, that believe that God can, or sorry, that Bob can swim based on all the other evidence surrounding Bob's ability to swim. So reasonability of belief isn't, isn't a question of the probability of one specific bit of information. Rather, it's based on the totality of all the evidence. So even if we did the, cal you know, we could measure evil, we could do, do a calculus, the probable, let's say the probability is low, it's 10% chance God exists. 
The reasonability for belief in God is not founded solely on the existence or non-existence of evil in the world or the amount of evil in the world. We have vast amounts of other evidence that points to the existence of God. We're going to talk about, we've already talked about some of it here, but we're going to talk about some more. And there's even things that we're not even going to be able to address in this, our time together um, in these weeks. There's things like the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the moral argument, which is kind of the other side of this argument, which is like, well, if you think God doesn't exist and you're saying there's things that are evil, well, how can you say that there's such a thing as an objective evil if there's not a God? Because how do you know that something is crooked unless you know you have a straight line to measure it against? C.S. Lewis talks about this when he, his conversion, right? So we have the moral argument. We have something called the ontological argument. We're going to talk mainly here about the historical evidence of the resurrection, the martyrdom of Jesus' disciples, God's revealed word that seems to, as I talked about earlier, it seems to transcend and speak into the lives of those who read it. So the evidence for God is so clear to man that Paul says in Romans 1, 18 to 20, God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, whom by their righteousness, whom by their unrighteousness, I'm sorry, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Again, the reasonability of Christian belief isn't a question of probability given one specific bit of evidence, the existence of evil in this case. Rather, it's based on the totality of the evidence. So we said at the beginning, there's kind of three pieces to this, right? You have the two intellectual problems that we talked about, the, the logical problem, the probabilistic problem, and now we have what you call the experiential or evidential or emotional uh, uh, problem of evil. So the two, the two um, intellectual problems ask why God? They ask, well, why can God or how can God exist if evil exists. The experiential problem really asks, why me? Now, if someone is in this place, first I want to kind of give a preface to this because we all experience this every day. We all experience this at some level. Um, now, if someone is in, this, is in this place, in this questioning of why me, God, or questioning whether or not God exists based on the evil or the sufferings that they're having, um, some practical applications you don't necessarily need to give theological answers up front. Someone's saying, I'm hurting, I don't know if God exists. You can be like, well, the prophet, you know, like the first two things we talked about, okay? So just help them to understand that faith is learning to trust God even when we can't see his reasons. You know, leave it open to, to discuss further those questions that we talked about. Because just like Paul says in Romans 12, 15, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Don't rebuke people and say, well, you're suffering because of X reason. Don't be in a teaching mode in the midst of people's grief. I know 
I have a tendency to do that. Sin of mine. I'll admit it. And ultimately, know sometimes there is nothing that you can say or do that can, that can be adequate enough to people sometimes. See, we as Christians must have a proper biblical framework and understanding of pain, evil, and suffering. So let's look at some verses that deal with the topic to help us kind of build this framework. Paul says in Romans 5, 1-5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith and to this grace in which we stand and we rejoice and hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Also, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul, beaten, shipwrecked, in jail, this momentary, ultimately beheaded in Rome. This momentary light affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. James says in James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See, these verses... These verses are saying that suffering in this, in this life produces something that is transcendent of this life. Our suffering now will produce for us and for others observing our godly handling of suffering, a greater abiding good that will transcend this life. We already have this notion or concept in our heads, just how we operate in, in our daily lives, right? Every day, people willingly go through painful medical procedures with painful recoveries, often long recoveries. Why? Because they know that the temporary pain of the operation, the rehabilitation, will produce a better abiding state in the future. You know, my mother got her knees replaced, right? She knew the pain of the, of the operation, the, you know, the rehabilitation, and why? Because she knew that there was a better abiding state after that pain and suffering. But why do we think that the suffering or afflictions described in the Bible and enduring them is somehow different? See, in our culture today, we have a notion that this, right now, is our best life. And that true happiness comes when we live this life as our best life, right? You see it all over the place. You only live once. All this stuff that's in the broader culture. You know, live your, live, I'm living my best life. I'm not saying it's wrong to enjoy life or anything of that nature, but that's become the idol. That's become the source. See, according to this notion, if happiness in this life is minimized or suffering or suffering is somehow caused, so, you know, you're bringing down my, my happiness or my joy and suffering is increased, 
well, then that's a bad thing, right? Because this is our, to them, this is the best life. And often this happens, when this happens, people blame God or say there is no God. However, this is a completely foreign concept to biblical understanding. Our best life is not this life. I hate to break it to you if you didn't know that. This life is not our best life. Our best life is, the resur- is our resurrected bodies in the new creation. Our best life is an eternity with God. See, according to a biblical understanding, anything that draws us closer to God and our true best life with Him, including suffering and pain, is counted as joy. Just like we read in Romans 5.3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and character and steadfastness. It is this biblical understanding, when we use this, we can see how Peter and the apostles in Acts 5, after being beaten for preaching the gospel, rejoice that they were counted worthy, and I quote, counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And we, this is going to be reminiscent of what we just talked about in Acts, because we just went through this in Acts. It's with this biblical understanding that we see in Acts 6 and 7, Stephen, right? We just talked about Stephen. With his face shining like an angel, can be seized and be stoned to death, looking up into heaven and praying for those stoning him, saying, do not hold this sin against them. Also, what's interesting about the story of Stephen is right after Stephen is stoned at the end of Acts 7, we see that the church really starts to face a great persecution at the beginning of Acts 8. But what's the result? The people who are scattered begin to preach the word. They were cloistered together in Jerusalem. Stephen is stoned, and then they scatter. What caused the scatter? What what brought about God's purposes? So the martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution of the church is what helped launch the entire Great Commission to begin with, to bring the gospel you know, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It was suffering. So suffering can be used by God to accomplish his purposes. You know, just like with the story of Joseph, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Perfect example, evil men trying to do evil things to a man that God used that to accomplish his plans and purposes and then bless an entire nation. See, in the midst of pain and suffering, God is working. Just as Romans 8.28 says, and we, and we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good. Even though we may not see it, even though we may not understand it, God is at work in the midst of suffering for our good. This life with all its pain and suffering is but a flash in the pan compared to the eternal promise we have in Christ Jesus. See, the experiential problem of evil has a problem with perspective. It lacks the eternal perspective. And I... My mind always goes to this, um, John Newton, if you don't know the story of John Newton, it's 
go look it up. He was a slave trader and he wrote Amazing Grace. Um, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as a sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. The suffering of this life will be nothing compared to an eternity with Christ. If suffering produces a salvific knowledge, a saving knowledge, an understanding of Jesus and who he is and what he means for our sins and who we are as wretched sinners, or if suffering pushes us closer to our Lord and Savior, how can we not count it as joy, just as the apostles did? So that is the proper understanding and biblical framework of the experiential problem of evil. That's all I have. Um, if we had any questions or anything. Thank you. And come up afterwards too, if you want. <laughs>